You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War. Com. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon, Episode 5, The Setting Sun. Thanks for joining me. A couple quick reminders before we get going. Like and follow the podcast on social media if you want updates and some extremely viral Napoleonic internet content. The Twitter account is at Age of Napoleon. The Facebook page is facebook.com slash Age of Napoleon. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show on iTunes. I still don't totally understand how that's actually good for the show, but I'm reliably informed that it has something to do with algorithms. Thanks to those of you who already have, algorithms aside, the reviews have been really great to read. If you want to support the show financially, please visit patreon.com slash ageofnapoleon. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash ageofnapoleon. And by the way, thanks a lot to all of you who have already chipped in. Your support means a lot personally, and it's gone to good use. Anyway, this is a big episode, so let's get into it. Today we'll be talking about France in the 18th century. France was the greatest power in Europe for most of the Renaissance and early modern periods. And of course, it would go on to conquer almost the entire continent under Napoleon. But on the eve of the French Revolution in 1789, no one would have predicted that the height of French power was still in the future. The 1700s were difficult years for France, years of confusion, stagnation, and decline. At the beginning of the century, French power was almost unmatched, and the political system was one of the most modern and effective in Europe. By the end, society was in crisis and the government was on the verge of collapse. In this episode, I want to give a brief overview of French history, take a look at how and why France fell into decline, and show you a little bit of what the country looked like on the eve of the massive upheavals of the Revolution and Napoleonic Wars. In the late 17th and early 18th centuries, there was a political theory called universal monarchy. Basically, philosophers looked at the big political trend of their era, monarchs amassing more power and more territory, and predicted that this process would continue until there was one final victor, every realm in Europe united under a single crown. It might sound a little crazy to modern ears, but given the rapid political changes that took place in this era, it's not an illogical conclusion. And as we'll see later, Napoleon nearly pulled it off. But of course, no one at the beginning of the 18th century could foresee Napoleon. When people talked about universal monarchy, the man they usually had in mind was King Louis XIV of France. 
Louis XIV was king for an unbelievable 72 years, from 1643 to 1715. France was totally transformed during his time on the throne. We've talked a lot about monarchs who reformed and centralized their governments, rulers like Frederick the Great, Catherine the Great, Joseph II of Austria. Louis was the template for all of them. He was the example all the other great kings and emperors of that era sought to emulate. The original absolutist, the first European monarch to make a significant, successful effort to move his government away from feudalism and towards a professional, modern administration. Now, I'm not normally a fan of psychoanalyzing historical figures. Popular historians seem to like doing this a lot more than actual professional psychologists, which I think tells you something about how effective it is. That said, there is an incident from the childhood of Louis XIV that I think is revealing. Louis became king when he was a small boy. France was politically unstable in the mid-17th century, and having a king who was too young to participate in government only made the situation worse. There were civil wars and rebellions as different groups within society fought to make the child king their puppet. During one of these rebellions, a mob broke into the king's residence, and the 12-year-old Louis woke up to find his bedroom crowded with ragged, angry commoners. Fortunately for Louis, the mob didn't wish him any harm, they mostly just gawked at him and politely begged him to convince his regency to change their policies. Louis pretended to be asleep. Not the most courageous move, but maybe a wise one. The guards soon arrived to clear the mob out, and they left peacefully, so the whole incident really amounted to nothing, but it made a big impression on Louis. You have to remember, this was a time when a young monarch like Louis would have been kept cloistered away from any contact with the public. He had probably only seen a regular person up close a few times in his life, and certainly never in such a large, uncontrolled group with no supervision from his tutors and guards. This was a shocking and unnerving experience. And that was just the most notable of several incidents during Louis's childhood in which his personal safety was threatened. On two occasions, he and his household were forced to flee Paris by a rebel army. For long periods of time, Louis lived practically under house arrest. Worse, many of the Regency's enemies were from the upper nobility, meaning they were Louis's own close relatives, and people he'd been raised to believe were his family's close friends and allies his whole life. Under these conditions, he grew up fast, and I think you can really see the influence of his unstable childhood on the way Louis governed. He ruled with a strong hand, and not just out of some authoritarian impulse. He really believed a strong monarchy was the only way to prevent the type of political chaos that had so shaped his childhood. He never trusted the nobility. After all, he'd seen with his own eyes how fragile their loyalty could be. So he tried to phase out the old feudal systems of administration, in which the king ruled through his nobles, replacing them wherever he could with absolutist systems, in which he ruled through a professional bureaucracy which would be loyal to him and wouldn't have the resources to challenge his power. You sometimes see Louis XIV depicted as an egomaniac. It's tempting to think of him that way. Most of you have probably heard his famous quotation, L'État c'est moi, I am the state, his nickname, the Sun King, which he himself encouraged, and I'm sure you've seen some of the splendor and opulence of his court at Versailles. This was definitely not a humble, understated personality. But there's more to him than simple megalomania. 
Louis had a political vision for the French monarchy, and building up his own majesty was part of it. Even the decadent palace he built at Versailles served important political purposes. Forcing the aristocracy to live at his court and attend to him put Louis at the center of the French aristocracy's social and domestic lives. That made it easier for Louis to put himself at the center of their political lives as well. Versailles brought nobles away from their regional centers of power, where they could scheme and build up their resources to challenge the king, to a central location where they could be watched closely, where their resources went towards funding the lavish lifestyles expected of them. And Versailles was away from Paris, away from the type of mobs who had so rudely interrupted Louis' sleep as a boy. Of course, none of this is to say Louis XIV didn't appreciate his luxuries. I don't think anyone who's seen Versailles could say that with a straight face. Louis also spent lavishly on the military, which was massively expanded and improved under his rule. And he wasn't afraid to use it either. France was at war almost constantly under the Sun King. France swallowed up huge swaths of territory, mostly to the east at the expense of the Habsburgs and the Holy Roman Empire. French expansion worried the rest of Europe, and containing Louis was the focus of European geopolitics for decades. By the time Louis died in 1715, France's borders were very close to the ones we know today, the only significant exception being Corsica, which, of course, we'll have cause to talk about in the future. As the story goes, on his deathbed, Louis begged his ministers to keep France at peace at all costs. The project of building up the French monarchy into the grandest, most powerful in Europe had been massively expensive, as had the military expansion and constant warfare. Louis' administrative reforms brought in more tax revenue than ever before, but it hadn't covered his costs. The royal government was deeply in debt. Ironically, Louis XIV was succeeded by another child king, his grandson Louis XV. Louis XIV was typically a meticulous political operator. But his own succession, one of the most important things any monarch does, was not well planned out. There was a fierce political battle in the wake of his death. When the dust settled, the Sun King's nephew, Philippe Duc d'Orléans, was named regent for Louis XV. This looked like a disaster for France. Philippe was one of the most famous noblemen in the country, but mostly for his love of debauchery rather than any skill as a statesman or soldier. Worse, to secure his position as regent, he'd promised to restore many of the old feudal powers and privileges of the nobility that Louis XIV had fought so hard to reduce. But things weren't as bad as they could have been. Philippe lived in a moralistic age, and people assumed he was some monster because he liked drinking and womanizing. But he actually wasn't a bad guy. He was generally kind, merciful, loyal to his friends and genuinely committed to what we today might call public service. We owe him a particular debt for being lenient in enforcing censorship laws. Without Philippe, the permissive environment that allowed the Enlightenment to flourish in Paris may have never taken hold. But Philippe's reign also goes to show the qualities that make a person decent have drawbacks in a ruler. Philippe was a soft touch, quick to help out with some money or a job in the government to anyone with a sob story or a personal connection. And with no one to rein him in, he spent lavishly on his vices and embarrassed the government with personal scandals. Loyalty to one's friends is an admirable quality, but as a high nobleman, all of Philippe's friends were other high noblemen. His favors to his buddies had political consequences. 
He was frittering away all the royal power the Sun King had so carefully gathered. The nobility were regaining their position. Philippe served as regent for seven years before the stress of command and his incessant drinking caught up with him. His health began to fail, and he died at only 49. As Philippe declined, Louis XV, grandson of the Sun King, was declared an adult and capable of ruling by himself in 1722. That might have been true in a literal sense, but the king rarely seemed mature or competent for any of the 52 years he ruled. There have been a few attempts to reevaluate him by modern scholars, but generally, Louis XV was considered a bad king in his own time, and most historians since have agreed. Louis XV was an intelligent man, but he never took much interest in the royal administration. His grandfather had created an absolutist system, tailored to operate with an assertive, active monarch at his center, a man like Louis XIV. With an uninterested king like Louis XV at its center, parts of it began to atrophy and sink into corruption. Ambitious nobles filled the void. This created a dangerous level of administrative chaos, as resurgent feudal institutions vied for power with the weakened branches of the absolutist state of the Sun King. Louis XIV had always been careful to hold himself aloof from the most debauched, frivolous aspects of life at Versailles. He indulged himself in drinking, parties, and affairs, but always in moderation, discreetly. The Sun King never forgot that the glittering court life at Versailles was in large part a distraction, a mirage he himself had created to dazzle and pacify his potential enemies among the nobility. His grandson, Louis XV, seems not to have had that same understanding. He fully embraced the hedonism of Versailles, often preferring his social role as top of the palace social pyramid to his role as head of the royal government. Unlike his grandfather, he rarely bothered attending meetings of his ministers or even ventured outside his palaces. He fundamentally cared more about having a good time than the safety or prosperity of the country he ruled. Louis XV's constant drunken antics and sex scandals were fodder for the burgeoning tabloid press. This was a big contributor to what scholars call the desacralization of the French monarchy. In earlier eras, the king had been regarded with reverence. People took the concept of the divine right of kings seriously, and monarchs in France were viewed almost like gods. But by the beginning of the 18th century, thanks to Louis, People had become accustomed to reading about royal partying and sexual indiscretions, even having a laugh at the king's expense. The king began to seem more like a regular, flawed man than a god, and men can be replaced, or even killed. Anyway, fortunately for France, Louis XV's voracious sexual appetite brought him into contact with someone who actually was interested in governing the country, Madame Pompadour. She was a beautiful, brilliant commoner who became his mistress in 1745. Mistress of the king was a powerful social position, and she soon parlayed it into a political role, effectively acting as regent for the disinterested Louis. And she wasn't some silent power behind the throne. For example, she personally directed the French war effort during the Seven Years' War, even issuing orders to French generals in the field. She was also a major patron of art and of the new philosophy and science of the Enlightenment. Madame Pompadour was an unlikely statesman, but a remarkable one. One of the few bright spots of Louis' dismal reign. And yes, she also invented the Pompadour hairstyle. I'm not kidding. Louis XV was massively unpopular, and he knew it. 
and he hated the people of France right back. His weak, incompetent, corrupt regime damaged the credibility of the French monarchy so badly that it arguably never recovered. But the worst of his failures had been kept a state secret. The royal government was deeply in debt and hemorrhaging money. Louis' ministers had made a few poorly coordinated attempts to raise more revenue and reduce expenditures, but the debt had only grown under his watch and was nearing crisis levels. It's a sad irony that his comparatively blameless successor was the one who suffered so much for the monarchy's failures. Louis XV died in his bed in 1774. When the revolution broke out in earnest, one of the first things the Paris mobs did was tear down the statue of the king they'd hated. But that was still in the future. In 1774, the people of France were rejoicing. Bad old king was dead, and his successor, his grandson, Louis XVI, had a reputation as a kind, progressive family man who loved the common people of France. People were so looking forward to him taking the throne, the press had nicknamed him the Desired One. As we know, it wouldn't last, but there was a real moment of optimism, even elation. So that's what was going on at the top in France. But that world of the court was only accessible to a tiny elite within an elite. For the rest of the episode, I'd like to talk about what was going on in the rest of French society. Until the Revolution, everything in French life was dictated by social position within the old feudal hierarchy. The aristocracy was small compared to some other European countries. They were under 1% of the total population, maybe less than half a percent. But the nobles dominated everything. They owned a huge proportion of the land, and still wielded much of their traditional political and financial power over the peasants who lived in their domains. They enjoyed exemption from most types of taxation, and were subject only to their own special law codes and court systems. Only nobles could attend the best educational institutions, or hold high ranks in the army, navy, or politics. Commoners were even legally required to bow and doff their caps if they encountered a nobleman in public. And it's important to keep in mind, this was a status that came from birth. It wasn't a case of the haves and the have-nots. There were poor nobles, and there were rich commoners. Rich or poor, none of the nobility worked. They were legally forbidden from taking part in most kinds of business or taking up a trade. Thousands of nobles lived at Versailles, at least part-time, but life there was extravagantly expensive, even with the subsidies provided by the king. For those who couldn't afford it, the next best thing was residing in a fancy neighborhood in Paris, at least part of the year. Nobles who couldn't afford that mostly lived on their rural estates, much as they had done in the Middle Ages. Some of the poorest nobles were not much better off than the peasants around them. There was a small degree of social mobility. Government offices in this period were bought, sold, and inherited just like property, and many of them came with a noble title. So, if one of these offices was vacant and a wealthy commoner could afford it, they could effectively buy their way into the nobility. As you can probably imagine, the aristocracy was incredibly snobbish and often turned up their noses at these newcomers, but wealthy new nobles usually had no problem marrying their children off to eminent old families who needed a cash infusion. One of the biggest privileges of nobility was tax exemption. Obviously, this was a nice financial perk, but it became much more than that. A point of pride, a symbol of independence and status. Of course, it was completely insane from a public policy standpoint. The noble exemptions meant the burden of taxation generally fell on the poorest and least able to pay. 
Over the course of the 18th century, there were no shortage of intellectuals, bureaucrats, and royal officials who recognized this was a problem and advocated ending the noble exemptions, but there was always ferocious political resistance. This was not a simple financial matter, it was about identity. It can be hard to understand how the nobility could selfishly cling to these obviously undeserved privileges that were ruining their country, but we have to remember, these were their traditional rights. Many 18th century aristocrats cherished their noble rights just as closely as citizens of modern democracies cherished their civil and political rights. They viewed their privileges as inalienable, just as we do with our rights. The clergy were an even smaller proportion of the population than the nobility. In 1799, there were about 100,000 clergy men and women in France out of a total population of over 20 million. Still, the church played a huge role in French life. Theoretically, the Catholic Church was a meritocracy, but the distinction between nobles and commoners was mostly maintained. Church leaders, abbots, abbesses, bishops, and cardinals, almost all came from noble families and lived pampered, luxurious lifestyles. Monks, nuns, and parish priests were mostly born commoners and often lived in poverty. It's hard to overstate how powerful the church was. You often see it described as a state within a state, and I think that's pretty accurate. The clergy were subject only to their own laws and courts, and not only were they immune from taxation, the central government didn't even have the right to audit their finances. This might not sound like a big deal. After all, religious organizations in the United States today are exempt from taxation. But by some estimates, the church and individual members of the clergy owned up to 20% of all the property in France. And the church did not operate like a nonprofit. It acted as a landlord to rural sharecroppers in commercial real estate in cities and towns. It even rented out apartments in big cities. It was common for religious institutions to operate businesses, usually wineries or breweries. This was a huge portion of the economy that was out of reach to taxation. This state of affairs was actually encouraged by the government to a degree because the church played an important social role. In earlier eras of history, governments didn't have the resources to address education or what we today might call social welfare. So they effectively farmed out these services to the church and granted it tax exemptions and revenue streams like land, property, or monopoly rights to provide for them financially. This deal worked okay for centuries, but as the government became increasingly strapped for cash and capable of taking over the social welfare functions itself, people began to question the usefulness of this arrangement. And all was not well within the church itself. None of the money brought in by the church was spent where it was collected. Everything went into the central coffers and then was doled out by the leadership. The opportunities for misuse of funds and outright corruption are obvious. Bishops and cardinals lived in splendor, but it was not uncommon for village priests to beg their parishioners for food just to stave off starvation. This imbalance angered the lower ranks of the clergy and the Catholic faithful. Amazingly, we've come this far in the episode without directly talking about the vast majority of the population of France, the commoners. At the time of the revolution, the Abbesillais estimated they were 96% of the population, but modern historians put it even higher, up to 98%. The vast majority of commoners were peasants, non-nobles who lived in rural areas and were involved in agriculture. Over three-quarters of the total population of France were peasants. 
France was a rural country during this period, more so than any country on Earth today. Paris was the only city of any considerable size, and in 1789, just over half a million of France's 23 million people lived there. Bordeaux, Marseille, and Lyon, the cities that could plausibly claim to be France's second city, all had under 100,000 people. 80% of the population lived outside towns and cities, often very far outside. A census after the revolution found that about one-third of the residents of France lived in a settlement of fewer than 35 people. In the poor, rural Vendée region of western France, there was only one town of over a thousand people in 1789. With such an isolated, dispersed population, most inhabitants of rural France had no concept of national identity as Frenchmen, or even of regional or provincial identities. For many of them, it would have been rare to ever see a strange face. Many people probably lived and died without ever encountering anyone other than a few dozen family members, distant neighbors, and the occasional traveling merchant. With such little interaction with the wider world, there was little need to think of grand, abstract types of identity like nationality or ethnicity. The French language as we know it was the official language of the royal government, but was only the common spoken language of a small region around Paris and the few educated people scattered through the country. Language and dialect was a spectrum in this era. If you were to travel from, say, Paris to Rome today, you'd probably hear French every day of your trip until you crossed the border, then Italian every day of your trip until you reached Rome. If you made the same trip in 1750, the change would happen in degrees. Every day, the speech of the local people would sound a little bit further from the quote-unquote standard French spoken in Paris, a little more southern, a little closer to Italian or Spanish or Catalan. It'd be hard to put your finger on exactly where you passed the linguistic border between dialects or languages. If there was anything uniting the scattered people of France, it was Catholicism, which had a presence in every corner of the country and was the religion of about 98% of the population. There was a Jewish population in Paris and in the far eastern provinces along the Rhine, and pockets of Protestants too, mostly in the south, but most French people would live their whole lives without laying eyes on someone who wasn't a Catholic. But Catholicism was far from uniform. In such a diverse, spread-out country, it's no surprise the church struggled to enforce orthodoxy. People often preferred their own local ways of worship. They venerated their own unofficial saints, celebrated their own festivals and rituals without sanction from the church. To take one example, in southeastern France, a cult developed around a local saint called saint Guinefort. There were many such local cults, but Guinefort's case is unusual because he was not a human being, he was a dog. The faithful saw him as a protector of babies. Mothers of sick infants would take them to the woods to engage in a secret ritual to ask the dog saint for a cure, a practice with some obvious pagan overtones. Despite the official disapproval of the church, the veneration of St. Guinefort the dog continued until the 20th century. I think that's a good window into the world of rural France in this period. Peasant life was small and parochial, to a degree that's hard to imagine for people like us who live in constant communication with the wider world. Their lives were still dominated by magic and superstition, devoid of modern concepts that would shape the lives of their descendants, like national identity or affiliation with broad social and political movements. 
The rural peasantry has a small impact on our story relative to its size, but we shouldn't forget they're there, even if they're often in the background. Rural France was entering a crisis in the late 18th century, and that crisis would be a decisive factor in the coming revolution. The peasants lived in crushing poverty by our standards, and in the late 18th century, it was getting worse. On the eve of the revolution, many peasants, perhaps even a majority, were unable to meet their financial obligations to the taxman and their feudal lords. Many were unable even to provide for their own basic needs. Starvation was common in the countryside. Others turned to banditry when times were hard. With that said, it might be surprising to hear that many peasants actually owned property. Up to one-third of the territory of France was owned by peasants, and many who didn't own the land they worked had fairly generous permanent leasing rights. It wasn't rents that drove people into poverty, it was taxes and feudal dues. Taxes to the king sometimes came in the form of flat income taxes, usually paid in grain, but what the peasants really hated were consumption taxes the royal government levied on dozens of different products and services. And this wasn't just a French phenomenon. The Stamp Act and the Boston Tea Party probably ring some bells with American listeners. The British were introducing these same types of taxes into 13 colonies during the 18th century, and the French peasants hated them just as much as the American colonists. The gabelle was generally considered the worst. This was a tax on salt, which might not sound like a big deal, but salt was an absolute necessity for preserving food and it grated on the peasants to pay for something they could easily get for free by boiling seawater. Feudal dues were paid to the local lord. Almost all the land in France was divided into feudal domains. Working on the land within a lord's domain meant entering into a contract with him that entitled him to a percentage of your produce, along with certain fees and surcharges that varied from place to place. Some peasants were even subject to a kind of labor draft called the corvée, which usually meant doing unpaid construction work a set number of days a year, typically maintaining roads and bridges. In the Middle Ages, there had been a certain logic to feudal dues. The lord was local government, law enforcement, and military protection, and he was expected to have a kind of paternalistic relationship with the peasants. In theory, at least, this was a reciprocal partnership, An unequal partnership, of course, but one in which both sides got something. That wasn't really the case anymore by the 18th century. In most places in France, the central government had taken over most of those administrative functions, and most nobles preferred living large in Versailles or Paris to acting as a local patriarch to a bunch of country bumpkins. So the nobility was providing less to the peasants than ever before, but they were actually demanding more. France experienced inflation during the 18th century. Aristocrats found that what was adequate to fund their lifestyle one year might not be enough the next. And remember, just getting a job was illegal for an aristocrat. So to raise cash, it was very common for nobles to hire lawyers who specialized in feudal contracts to examine their holdings with a fine-tooth comb, looking for old types of fees or taxes that hadn't been collected for decades, or really any loophole or bit of fine print that could be used to squeeze more money out of the peasants. Taxes from the central government were rising as well. To try to control their ballooning debt and constant budget shortfalls, royal ministers increased taxes, and with the clergy and nobility mostly exempt, that meant more money from the peasantry. It was easy for the powerful to squeeze the peasants. They didn't have much recourse but to tighten their belts and try to survive. 
But by the late 18th century, anxiety and anger was building in the countryside. When that type of resentment exists and can't be expressed through any legal avenue, it can come out in shocking, sometimes violent ways. And during the days of the revolution, that's just what happened. City dwellers always get more attention than rural people in histories of this era. In part, that's because we just have better records of their lives, but also because the urban population of France, in particular Paris, played a central role in the events of the revolution. It's hard to overestimate how dominant Paris was, and still is, in the French economic, political, and cultural life. It's not much of an exaggeration to say Paris was the only city in France. In fact, one way to look at the entire revolution is as a Parisian revolution, the city that was central in economic and cultural life, asserting the same type of dominant role in the political sphere, imposing its values and standards on a diverse rural country. Just like London, people streamed into Paris from the countryside in this era. Like immigrants from a foreign country today, newcomers often clustered together with others from their region in certain neighborhoods and professions. You might hear only the Provençal dialect of southern France on one street, then turn the corner and find everyone speaking in the Norman dialect. Women from Brittany tended to work as maids, and a huge proportion of Parisian chimney sweeps came from Savoy in the Alps near Italy. The most famous group of French city dwellers of this era were the urban underclass, famously known as the sans-culottes, which literally means without breeches. Breeches were in style, but pants were cheaper. Ever fashion conscious, supposedly it was only a truly destitute Frenchman who wore pants. Thus, the nickname was born. Generally speaking, the sans-culottes were the poorest and most miserable people in the kingdom. You sometimes see them depicted as a kind of Marxist industrial proletariat, but that's not really accurate. Like I mentioned last episode, it's way too early to be talking about industrialization in Britain, and France was even further away. If the sans-culottes worked at all, it was unskilled labor, sometimes manufacturing, but the most common profession among them was actually service in a wealthy household. Jobs like stable hand, chambermaid, coachman, or kitchen assistant to some aristocrat or rich merchant which certainly adds a personal edge to some of the notorious mob violence of the revolution, doesn't it? Those without permanent employment scraped by as day laborers and petty criminals, or survived on charity, or simply didn't survive at all. Like London, Paris had a higher death rate than birth rate. Unlike the rural poor, the sans-culottes did have some sense of identity and of their place in the wider world. This is what enabled them to become an effective political force during the revolution. Above the sans-culottes in the urban social hierarchy were what we today might call working-class people. Skilled laborers, artisans, tradesmen. They didn't have much, but their existence was relatively comfortable and stable compared to the sans-culottes and to most of the peasantry. Just like today, many of the more well-off within this demographic identified more with the values of the middle class, which may have made sense in some cases, but was often more aspirational than practical. Of course. The real movers and shakers of city life were the ascendant middle class, the bourgeoisie. These were merchants, doctors, lawyers, bankers, professional men, and their families. There was a lot of variation in wealth among the bourgeoisie. For example, a young accountant in a small business might actually be poorer than a prosperous tradesman, but the prestige that comes with an education and what we'd call white-collar work would have put him higher up on the social ladder than a butcher or a tailor. On the other end of the spectrum, 
Some of the richest men in the kingdom were technically considered middle class. That status would only change if they used their wealth and influence to obtain a noble title. The bourgeoisie were only a small minority of the total urban population, but their importance to the economy meant that pre-revolutionary city life often reflected their tastes and their values more than anyone else's. At the beginning of the 18th century, they mostly aped the aristocrats in their behavior and outlook. But as their general level of wealth and education grew and Enlightenment ideas took root, the bourgeoisie grew in self-confidence and began to emerge as a distinct social class with its own identity and interests. As the middle class matured, their idolization of the aristocracy began to curdle into resentment of unearned noble privilege. Increasingly, the middle classes were the economic engine and social backbone of France. Just as in Britain, business, manufacturing, and trade were becoming more lucrative and more important than agriculture, but unlike their British counterparts, the French middle class was not rising in prestige and status as they grew in importance. The upper ranks of the army and navy remained closed to them. Their children were barred from the best schools. They were required to bow and genuflect and make way on public roads when they encountered a noble, and they certainly weren't allowed any say in the country's political life. The bourgeoisie began to feel they were entitled to more. In their minds, they steered the economy, and increasingly the cultural and intellectual scene as well. And yet, society treated them as inferiors to useless, idle nobles whose only claim to status was being born with the right last name. The bourgeoisie wanted a meritocracy, because they believed they were meritorious people whose talents and contributions deserved a reward. This middle-class anger at noble privilege and aspiration to political power was a major motivating factor behind the revolution. At least, that's one view of the French bourgeoisie that was dominant among historians for most of the 20th century. Some more recent scholars have poked some holes in this consensus, pointing out that the separation between the middle classes and the aristocracy wasn't quite as clear and simple as it's sometimes portrayed. Their research has shown that many of the proto-capitalist ventures in 18th century France were actually driven by the royal government or by aristocrats, and that many of the richest among the bourgeoisie were able to use their wealth to obtain a noble title and integrate into the aristocracy. So maybe there wasn't such a clear-cut class conflict between the capitalist middle class and the agrarian aristocracy. For my own two cents, I do think there was a real friction caused by the fact that the middle class was growing in importance but remained disenfranchised. It seems clear that France's transition from a feudal agrarian economy, which favored the aristocracy, to an early capitalist economy, which favored the bourgeoisie, was not smooth and led to social problems that contributed to the revolution. But I do think we should be skeptical of explanations of the revolution that portray it as nothing more than a conflict between the old economy and the new economy. That strikes me as simplistic. So that was France before the revolution. Louis XIV had brought the country to unprecedented heights of power and pioneered new methods of administration and governance that were the key to success for 18th century governments. But the glories of the Sun King's regime were shallow. Louis modernized France, but modernity brought deep, fundamental social problems to the surface and unleashed forces that his successors could not control. Neither the regent, Philippe, nor Louis XV ever mastered or even really understood the system their predecessor created. France had shown so much promise at the end of the 17th century, but by the time Louis XVI took the throne in 1774, the cracks were showing. 
this remarkable decline actually helped motivate much of the French Enlightenment political and economic theory. These thinkers wanted to understand and analyze what happened, where the country had gone wrong. Some of them even came up with some pretty good answers, but it didn't matter. The government had become too sclerotic to implement the types of bold reforms the Enlightenment philosophers advocated. The whole country seemed to be losing confidence. Imagine if today, after all the talk of China's rise over the last few decades, the growth suddenly stopped and China began to stagnate and decline, and that there was no one obvious explanation. Think of how intellectuals and politicians would talk about it and try to explain it. Imagine what it would do to Chinese society and culture, how desperate people would feel for an explanation and a solution. I think that's a decent metaphor for what was going on in France in the late 18th century. This was a big part of the reason people were so ecstatic when Louis XVI took the throne. It seemed like maybe he was the right person to end the slump and put the country back on an upward trajectory. But... We know he wasn't the man for the job, and the French would find out soon enough. I think we'll leave things there for now. I bit off a bit more than I could chew with this episode, and didn't have time to cover everything I wanted to, so I'm going to do a mini-episode early next week with some more France content. Next episode after that will be on 18th century warfare and military life, and the pre-revolutionary French army. One last thing, the fundraiser is still going strong. The bonus episode will be in a couple weeks, so you don't have much longer to sign up if you want to submit a topic. I think I'll set Sunday the 28th of May as the deadline for submissions. That's Noni D, Nine Prairie All, for those of you who use the French Revolutionary Calendar. Visit patreon.com slash ageofnapoleon if you want in. Anyway, that's all for today. See you next time. 